Part thirty six of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part thirty six. Peter Lemaitre, convicted of robbing the Ashmolean Museum at Oxford. When Lord Thurlow was Chancellor of England, some villains broke into his house in Great Ormond Street, and stole the Great Seal of England, which was never recovered, nor were the thieves known. We have heard also of a valuable diamond being stolen from the late Duke of Cumberland, when pressing into the theatre in the Haymarket to see the bubble of the bottle conjurer. It is also a fact that the Duke of Beaufort was robbed of his diamond order of St. George, as he went to court on a royal birthday but we have yet to tell that a museum was robbed of its curious medals. Peter Lemaitre, the thief, was a French teacher at Oxford, and being supposed to be a man of industry and good morals, he was indulged with free admission to the Ashmolean Museum. Thither he frequently went, and appeared very studious over the rare books, and other valuable articles there deposited. He was frequently left alone to his researches. At one of such times he stole two medals, and at another he secreted himself until the doors were locked up for the night. When all had retired, he came from his lurking-place, and broke open the cabinet where the medals were locked up, and possessed himself of its contents. He then wrenched a bar from the window, and, unsuspected, made his escape. The college was thrown into the utmost consternation on finding their museum thus plundered. Some were suspected, but least of all Lemaitre until it was discovered that he had privately left the city in a post-chaise and four, and that he had pledged two of the stolen medals to pay the post-boys. This left little doubt that he was the ungrateful thief. He was advertised and described, and by this means apprehended in Ireland. He was conveyed back to Oxford in order to take his trial, and it appeared that two of the stolen medals were found in a bureau in his lodgings, of which he had the use, and two more were traced to the persons to whom he had sold them. He had little to offer in extenuation of his crime, and on the clearest evidence he was found guilty on the 7th of March, 1777, and he paid the penalty of his offence by enduring five years' hard labour at ballast-heaving on the River Thames. Whether the ungrateful depredation of Lemaitre stimulated others to the commission of similar crimes we know not, but it is certain that soon afterwards Maudling College Chapel, Oxford, was broken open by two thieves, who stole from the altar a pair of large silver candlesticks and a silver dish, with which they escaped undetected. David Brown Dignam, convicted of pretending to sell places under government. The case of this offender may well be looked upon as a warning to many of those whose advertisements are daily seen in the newspapers of the present day, offering a premium to any person who will find a situation for the advertiser. Many persons have recently been duped in their search after employment by fellows who have obtained their money by means of false pretences, but few have gone the length to pretend to put the advertiser in possession of the place which he sought. Dignam was indicted on the 5th of April, 1777, at the Guildhall, Westminster, for defrauding Mr. John Clark of the sum of one hundred pounds two shillings and tenpence, which he had obtained from him under the pretence of investing him with the office of the Clerk of the Minutes in His Majesty's Custom House in Dublin. The evidence in the case was very simple. 
the negotiation was commenced between mr clark and the prisoner at an early period in the year and the money having been paid over the prisoner handed to the prosecutor a stamped paper or warrant bearing the signature of lord weymouth and countersigned by thomas dore which he told him would enable him to assume the office which it mentioned upon his proceeding to do so however he was found to have been hoaxed and upon inquiry he discovered that the signatures were forged and that the seals attached to the warrant had been taken from some other instrument the jury immediately found the prisoner guilty but the magistrates hesitated a long time on the punishment which should be inflicted on such an offender and at length sentenced him to work five years on the river thames the prisoner while in tothill fields bridewell tried every means in his power to effect his escape and offered to bribe an attendant in the prison with a bank-note of ten pounds to favour his escape in a large chest upon his conviction no time was now lost in conveying him on board the ballast lighter being possessed of plenty of money and having high notions of gentility he went to woolwich in a post-chaise with his negro servant behind expecting that his money would procure every indulgence in his favour and that his servant would still be admitted to attend him but in this he was egregiously mistaken the keepers of the lighter would not permit him to come on board and dignam was immediately put to the duty of the wheelbarrow on monday of the fifth of may dignam sent a forged draft for five hundred pounds for acceptance to mr drummond banker at charing cross who discovering the imposition carried the publishers before sir john fielding but they were discharged and it was intended to procure an habeas corpus to remove dignam to london for examination this plan however was soon seen through for on consideration it seemed evident that dignam by sending the forged draft from on board the lighter preferred the chance of escape even though death presented itself on the other side to his situation so that no further steps were taken in the affair and he remained at work for the period to which he was sentenced by the laws of his country james hill alias hind alias atkins alias john the painter executed for firing portsmouth dockyard a more dangerous character than this has rarely existed his offence was of a nature aimed at the very safety of the kingdom and if successful and followed up by the operations of his more powerful friends for whose benefit it eventually appeared that he had committed the foul crime of which he was guilty the most disastrous consequences might have ensued hill it appears was a scotchman by birth and was by trade a painter from which circumstance he obtained the name by which he was generally known of john the painter having gone to america at an early age during a residence there of some years he imbibed principles opposed to the interests of his own country transported with party zeal he formed the desperate resolution of committing a most atrocious crime against the welfare of england namely the burning of the dockyards at portsmouth and plymouth at about four o'clock in the afternoon of the seventh of december seventeen seventy six a fire broke out in the round-house of portsmouth dock by which the whole of that building was consumed and from whose ravages the rest of the surrounding warehouses were with difficulty saved the fire was at first attributed to accident but on the fifth of january following three men who were engaged in the hemp house discovered a tin machine somewhat resembling a tea canister and near the same spot a wooden box containing various kinds of combustibles this circumstance being communicated to the commissioner of the dock and circulated among the public 
several vague and indefinite suspicions fell upon Hill, who had been lurking about the dockyard, where he was distinguished by the appellation of John the Painter. In consequence of advertisements in the newspapers, offering a reward of fifty pounds for apprehending him, he was secured at Odiham, and on the 17th of February the prisoner was examined at Sir John Fielding's office, Bow Street, where John Baldwin, who exercised the trade of a painter in different parts of America, attended by the direction of Lord Temple. The prisoner's conversations with Baldwin operated very materially to secure his conviction. He said he had taken a view of most of the dockyards and fortifications about England, the number of ships in the navy, and had observed their weight of metal and their number of men, and had been to France two or three times to inform Silas Dean, the American envoy of his discoveries, that Dean gave him bills to the amount of three hundred pounds, and letters of recommendation to a merchant in the city, which he had burned, lest they should lead to a discovery. He informed Baldwin further that he had instructed a tinman's apprentice at Canterbury to make him a tin canister, which he carried to Portsmouth, where he hired a lodging at one Mrs. Boxall's, and tried his preparations for setting fire to the dockyard. After recounting the manner of preparing matches and combustibles, he said that on the 6th of the preceding December he got into the hemp-house, and having placed a candle in a wooden box and a tin canister over it, and sprinkled turpentine over some of the hemp, he proceeded to the rope-house, where he placed a bottle of turpentine among the loose hemp, which he sprinkled also with turpentine, and, having laid matches, made of paper daubed over with powdered charcoal and gunpowder diluted with water, and other combustibles about the place, he returned to his lodgings. These matches were so contrived as to continue burning for twenty-four hours, so that by cutting them into proper lengths he might provide for his escape, knowing the precise time when the fire would reach the combustibles. He had hired lodgings in two other houses, to which he also intended to set fire, that the engines might not all be employed together in quenching the conflagration at the dock. On the seventh he again went to the hemp-house, intending to set it on fire, but he was unable to effect his object, owing to a halfpenny worth of common house-matches that he had brought not being sufficiently dry. This disappointment, he said, rendered him exceedingly uneasy, and he went from the hemp-house to the rope-house, and set fire to the matches he had placed there. His uneasiness was increased because he could not return to his lodging, where he had left a bundle containing an Ovid's Metamorphoses, a Treatise on War and Making Fireworks, a Justin, a Pistol, and a French Passport, in which his real name was inserted, and also because he could not fire them too in accordance with his original plan. When he had set fire to the rope-house, he proceeded towards London, deeply regretting his failure in attempting to fire the other building, and was strongly inclined to discharge a pistol into the windows of the women who had sold him the bad matches. He jumped into a cart, and gave the woman who drove it sixpence to induce her to drive quick, and when he had passed the sentinels he observed that the fire had made so rapid a progress that the elements seemed in a blaze. At about ten o'clock the next morning he arrived at Kingston, and having remained there until dusk, at that time he proceeded on towards London in the stage. Soon after his arrival he went to the house of the gentleman on whom the bills had been drawn, but having related his story he was received with distrust, and therefore went away. On his reaching Hammersmith, he wrote back to the merchant, saying that he was going to Bristol, 
and he added that the handiworks he meant to perform there would soon be known to the public. Soon after his arrival in Bristol, he set fire to several houses, which were all burning at one time, and the flames were not extinguished until the damage to the amount of £15,000 had been caused. He also set fire to some combustibles which he had placed among the oil-barrels on the quay, but in this instance without the effect which he desired. His trial commenced on the 6th of March, 1777, at Winchester Castle, when witnesses were produced from different parts of the country, who proved the whole of his confession to Baldwin to be true, and gave other evidence of his guilt. When called upon for his defence, he complained of the reports circulated to his prejudice, and observed that it was easy for such a man as Baldwin to feign the story he had told, and for a number of witnesses to be collected to give it support. He declared that God alone knew whether he was or was not the person who set fire to the dockyard, and begged it might be attended to how far Baldwin ought to be credited, that if he had art enough, by lies, to insinuate anything out of him, his giving it to the knowledge of others was a breach of confidence, and if he would speak falsely to deceive him, he might also impose upon a jury. The learned judge, having delivered his charge to the jury, after a moment's consideration they returned a verdict of guilty. The sentence of death was immediately passed upon the prisoner, and he was ordered for execution on the 10th of March following, when he was hanged within sight of the ruins which he had occasioned. His body, for several years, hung in chains on Blockhouse Point, on the opposite side of the harbour to the town. To these particulars we shall add his confession. On the morning after his condemnation, he informed the turnkey, of his own accord, that he felt an earnest desire to confess his crime, and to lay the history of his life before the public, and that by discovering the whole of his unaccountable plots and treasonable practices, he might make some atonement to his injured country for the wrongs he had done it, of which he was now truly sensible. This request being made known to the Earl of Sandwich, then First Lord of the Admiralty, that nobleman directed Sir John Fielding to send down proper persons to take and attest his confession. He said that the diabolical scheme of setting fire to the dockyards and the shipping originated in his own wicked mind on the very breaking out of the rebellion in America, and he had no peace until he proceeded to put it in practice. The more he thought of it, the more practicable it appeared, and with this wicked intent he crossed the Atlantic. He had no sooner landed than he proceeded to take surveys of the different dockyards, and he then went to Paris, and had several conferences with Silas Dean, the rebel minister to the court of France. Dean was astonished at Hill's proposals, which embraced the destruction of the English dockyards and the shipping, but finding the projector an enthusiast in the cause of America, and a man of daring spirit, he gradually listened to his schemes, and supplied him with money to enable him to carry them into execution, procured him a French passport, and gave him a letter of credit on a merchant in London. He then confirmed the evidence given against him, and in particular that of the witness Baldwin, and he added that had he been successful in his attempt upon Portsmouth and Plymouth dockyards, he should have been rewarded with a commission in the American Navy. Francis Mercier, alias Louis de Butte, executed for murder. The case of this criminal was attended by circumstances of very great atrocity. The malefactor and his unfortunate victim were natives of France. 
The unfortunate Jacques Mondroit was a jeweller and watchmaker of Paris, and had made a journey to London in order to find a market for different articles of his manufacture. His stock consisted of curious and costly trinkets, worth, as was computed, a few thousand pounds. He took lodgings in Prince's Street, and engaged Mercier, who had resided some time in London, as his interpreter on a liberal gratuity, and treated him as a friend. It appeared that the ungrateful villain had long determined upon murdering his employer, in order to possess himself of the whole of his valuable property. To this diabolical end he gave orders for an instrument to be made of singular construction, which was a principal means of leading to his discovery as the murderer. It was shaped somewhat like an Indian tomahawk, and this instrument of death he concealed until an opportunity offered to effect his detestable purpose. One day his employer, Monsieur Mondroit, invited him to spend the evening. They played at cards, sang some French songs, and took a cheerful glass. But with that moderation peculiarly observable among Frenchmen, and a late hour having arrived, the kind heart of the host forbade his dismissing his friend without offering him a bed for the night. The offer was accepted after some hesitation, and both parties retired to rest. As soon as the neighbours were wrapped in sleep, Mercier took from the lining of his coat, where it had remained constantly concealed, the fatal weapon which had been prepared, and with it he struck his victim repeated blows on the head until he killed him. He then thrust the body into one of the trunks in which the owner had bought over his merchandise, and having ransacked and plundered the apartments, he locked the doors and made his escape. On the next day he had the hardihood to return to the house, and inquire whether Monsieur Mondroit had set off, pretending that he had proposed a journey into the country, and the people of the house concluding that he had let himself out before they had risen, and that this accounted for their finding the street door on the latch, replied that he must have departed, giving that circumstance as a reason for such belief. This audacious farce was acted by the murderer for some days, during which time he frequently called to know whether his friend had returned. The family, however, beginning to entertain suspicions of some foul play, procured a ladder, entered the chamber window of their unfortunate lodger, and soon discovered the body crammed into the trunk, which was only two feet four inches long, already beginning to putrefy. There appeared on the head several deep wounds. A warrant was thereupon granted to apprehend Mercier, who was taken just as he was alighting from a post-chaise, in which he had been jaunting with a woman of the town. In his lodgings and on his person were found sixteen gold watches, some of great value, a great number of brilliant diamonds and other rings, a variety of gold trinkets, and seventy-five guineas. On his examination he confessed his guilt, which, added to the proof that the manufactured articles had been the property of Mondroit, secured his conviction. He was subsequently tried at the Old Bailey, and a verdict of guilty being returned, he was sentenced to be hanged on the following Monday. He was carried to execution opposite the place where he committed the murder, and no man ever met death with more dread. He used every evasion to prolong the fatal hour, repeatedly craving time for his devotions, until the sheriff, perceiving his motive, gave the signal, and he was turned off, on the 8th of December, 1777, amid the execrations of the surrounding spectators. End of part 36